Thanks, everyone. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to talk about the future of CAR T-cell therapy and lymphoma. Uh, these are my disclosures. So just as an outline for what I'm going to talk about, I'll spend a brief amount of time talking about the clinical efficacy and toxicity overview of the existing CAR T-cells in clinical development in lymphoma, and then really talk a lot about remaining questions and challenges, specifically about toxicity, prediction, prevention, and management, resistance mechanisms, including antigen loss, T-cell exhaustion, the role of the tumor microenvironment, and the T-cell, we'll take a look at the T-cell, what we know about the T-cell product itself. We'll talk a little bit about costs and manufacturing time, and then spend some time talking about future directions uh, for where the field can go to um, answer some of these questions uh, and address some of these challenges. So uh, starting off with clinical efficacy and toxicity overview. So this is the first time I'm giving a CAR T-cell talk uh, without a sort of requisite slide uh, with a picture depicting what a CAR T-cell is. I think that we're up to speed with that at this point. Um, there are three CAR T-cells that are uh, in clinical development at this point in lymphoma. They're all directed against CD19. Um, there's AxiCell, um, which uh, has a CD28 uh, uh, co-stimulatory domain. There's uh, Tisagena occlusal, or T-cell, which has a 4-1-BB co-stimulatory domain, um, and then there is uh, lysocaptogene merilucil, or lysocell, which has a 4-1-BB co-stimulatory domain. And these have been tested in three uh, pivotal clinical trials, um, the ZUMA-1 trial, the Juliet study, and the Transcend study. Um, and as and as you can see here, um, you know, there's a, these are all tested in patients who have really chemotherapy refractory um, end-of-the-line diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and other aggressive B-cell lymphomas. And you can see um, a, you know, a very high response rate of uh, up to 80% uh, in patients and uh, complete response rates up to 50 to 60% in patients. And these responses do appear to be durable in a, in a subset of patients. Up to 40% of patients seem to have durable remissions um, from uh, CAR T-cell therapy, a single infusion of CAR T-cell therapy. Um, these, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to compare across these studies. I caution everybody not to compare across these studies. These, the patients were treated differently. Um, the studies were managed differently uh, in terms of the number of patients who were enrolled and then never got treated. That, that varies across the studies, as you can see here. It's lowest on the ZUMA-1 study and highest on the Juliet study. That has to do a little bit with um, differences in manufacturing time and how the patients were cued into manufacturing. Um, um, and, but it does, it does uh, raise some important um, issues and when you think about an intent to treat analysis on these. So the, the data that we see here that looks so good is a modified intention to treat analysis, which only really takes into account patients who received their CAR T-cell infusion. But amongst the patients who were screened for the studies and then ultimately did not, um, or had their cells collected and ultimately did not get their CAR T-cells, if you consider them in the denominator, these response rates do change a little bit. The, the results of the Juma-1 study and the Juliet study, though, did lead to the FDA approval of uh, AxiCell and T-cell for the treatment of relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, transformed follicular lymphoma, and other high-grade B-cell lymphomas um, uh, in, the, in the third line and setting and beyond. So just, uh, this is just another depiction of the duration of response that we're seeing. And so uh, you know, another way to think about this is that if you have someone who achieves a complete response after CAR T-cell therapy uh, in almost each, of these, uh, on e almost each of these studies, they have about a 70% chance of having a long-term uh, remission. Um, and that's much, much better than uh, the, what we see in the SCHOLAR-1 study, which was a retrospective meta-analysis looking at pa a similar patient group treated with um, experimental and other therapies. Um, 
where the median overall survival is only 6.3 months. Uh, the re uh, response rates are 26% and a CR rate of uh, only 7%. So what about toxicity following BCD19 CAR T cells and diffuse large B cell lymphoma? So uh, the two main toxicities we worry about are cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. Um, so cytokine release syndrome is the result of activation and expansion of these T cells upon reinfusion, um, leading to uh, increased levels of cytokines like IL-6, IL-15, and interferon gamma. Uh, the onset is usually around one to day one to three after CAR T-cell infusion, although it does differ with the different products and maybe a, a little bit on the later side with the 4-1-BB products, and tends to last about three to five days. Um, neurotoxicity is a little bit less well understood, although we'll talk a little bit about what we know about the mechanisms of neurotoxicity. Um, there is evidence of endothelial, endothelial activation and blood-brain barrier breakdown um, in these patients, um, we see both CAR, CAR positive T cells and CAR negative T cells in the CSF of these patients. And we also see higher levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines in the CSF compared to the blood. Um, and interestingly, in some of the animal models, it does look like some of these cytokines are coming from myeloid cells rather than the lymphocytes. The onset of neurotoxicity tends to be a little bit later than cytokine release syndrome, so this is, usually happens on the tail end of CRS, and it's about five to seven days after the CAR T-cell infusion. And can last, it, its duration's more variable, but in general lasts about five to 10 days. And usually it's reversible, except in uh, you know, the very rare and extreme cases of fatal cerebral edema. And because these uh, CAR T-cells are um, targeting CD19, they are um, indiscriminate uh, and also, uh, also targeting target healthy B cells, so uh, B cell aplasia is, a, is another side effect that's unique to CD19 CAR T cells. So just looking at the differential rates of toxicity across uh, the different studies, um, I'll, I'll uh, sort of clue you into the, this bottom portion. Um, there, uh, on Zuma 1, 93% uh, of patients had cytokine release syndrome, uh, only 13% of which were uh, grade 3 or higher, so that's the cytokine release syndrome that requires ICU level care. On the Juliet study, the rates of grade three or higher CRS were about 22%. It's a little different between the FDA label and what's been reported on the Juliet study so far. Um, but a note should be made that this is, they use a different um, grading system, and so some of these patients would have been considered grade two by the uh, criteria used on the Zuma-1 study and the Transcend study. And then very intriguingly on the Transcend study uh, with uh, Lysocell, uh, the rates of high-grade CRS are very low at, at one to three percent, depending on which cohort you're looking at. In terms of neurologic toxicity, um, grade three or higher neurologic toxicity, so these are generally patients who are, are so neurologically impaired that they could no longer uh, participate in their activities of daily daily living. Um, about a third of patients on the Zuma-1 study experienced grade 3 neurotoxicity, uh, where it was pretty similar across the Juliet and Transcend studies in the, in the 10 to 20 percent range. So what do we know about neurotoxicity? Um, we, we know some, a little bit from the clinical trials and a little bit from some <clears throat> new animal models that were recently published. So in terms of clinical associations, uh, there is an association between risk of neurotoxicity and disease burden. So patients with a higher disease burden have worse neurotoxicity. They also have higher peak levels of CAR T cells, um, as well as peak cytokines. And a number of cytokines are listed here that uh, have been significantly increased in patients who have high-grade uh, neurotoxicity. Um, 
um, patients who have early and high-grade CRS are at increased risk of developing neurotoxicity, and uh, there is an association between laboratory markers of uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation, uh, coagulopathy rather. Um, in terms of path pathologic associations, so some of this comes from uh, serum studies uh, and serum biomarker studies and CSF biomarker studies. Unfortunately, some of this comes from uh, from uh, actual autopsy material for some for patients who have passed away from cerebral edema, and some comes from animal models. But there do, does appear to be some impaired uh, some impaired vascular and blood brain barrier integrity. We, I've mentioned that we see these high levels of CSF cytokines. We see both car positive and car negative T cells in the CSF. Um, the group from Memorial had recently showed that there are high excitatory neurotransmitter levels within the CSF of patients who have high-grade neurotoxicity, including glutamate. And as I said, unfortunately, some, some patients have passed away from, from this. Um, and on autopsy, there's evidence of microthrombi and hemorrhage, endothelial activation, and diffuse gliosis. Um, there are uh, three animal models that were recently published. Uh, one was a mouse leukemia PDX that was treated with a CD19 car. Um, and here they showed that IL-1 and IL-6 are really important for the development of CRS and neurotoxicity. And I star IL-1 here because that seems to be more important for the development of neurologic toxicity. And only, and only blocking IL-1 activity uh, seemed to abrogate neurotoxicity. And in this study, they, after a, an elegant series of um, experiments, they were able to show that it's the monocytes that were the source of IL-1 and IL-6, not the lymphocytes themselves. Um, and then there was a recently published non-human non primate uh, model of neurotoxicity. This was a non-disease uh, rhesus monkey model. The, the monkeys were treated with a CD20 car because rhesus monkeys don't have CD19 on their B cells. Um, and in this model, they were, they were able to show um, both car positive and car negative T cells in the CSF, um, elevated uh, inflammatory cytokines in the CSF out of proportion to what was seen in the blood included IL-6, IL-2, GMCSF, and VEGF. Um, uh, on necroscopy, they did see widespread parenchymal car positive and car negative T cells within the brain. And interestingly, they saw increased, uh, increased expression of VLA4, a trafficking molecule, um, on car positive T cells um, in these monkeys, suggesting you know, uh, that, that, that actually trafficking of the T cells into the CSF is an important, uh, an, an, is an important um, mechanism of neurotoxicity. So in terms of what we don't know, that's what we know about uh, toxicity in, in CAR T cells. What don't we know? We really don't know how to predict, prevent, or manage um, neurotoxicity. Um, so if we think about it, we've gone over a number of baseline host factors that we know are associated with neurologic toxicity. We've talked a little bit about sort of the pharmacokinetics of the CAR T cell response. And I think if we can put, the, you know, if we can study this in a large cohort of patients, we might be able to put, a, put together a risk assessment for patients who are at risk for developing grade three or higher neurotoxicity and then maybe think about prophylactic strategies because my concern is that if we start treating at this point where we already see the neurotoxicity pathology in the CSF and in the brain, we may be too late. So a treatment strategy may not be the best strategy, but a preventive strategy may be better. In addition to just dealing with the cars that we already have and how to manage their toxicity, the question is, can cars be built to be safer and, as a caveat to that, also more effective? And so there are a variety of engineering technologies um, 
that are in development that are hypothesized to lead to a more natural and controlled level of T-cell activation, and so could be safer and potentially more potent. Um, so these include switch-mediated CAR T-cells, um, Boolean-gated CAR T-cells, so these are CAR T-cells that have a receptor for a tumor antigen, and only on binding to that tumor antigen does it turn on expression of the CAR T-cell, and then only on uh, binding of uh, and the CAR T-cell is directed towards a second antigen, and so only on dual um, antigen engagement with the CAR T with the CAR T cell be turned on. Um, there are mechanisms to actually uh, more um, uh, more elegantly place the CAR T cell gene product within the T cell genome. So using CRISPR to put this in a um, in the tact locus of the T cell so that the CAR T cell is expressed in the same. Um, to the same degree that a TCR would normally be expressed. Um, and then there's a, a, an, another generation of CAR T cells called T cell antigen coupler uh, or TAC T cells that are in development, and I, I depicted them over here. Um, this is a, um, a, T cell, a CAR T cell that you know, has the same, same idea that they have a receptor that's, um, that's binding to a tumor antigen, but it also has a, um, uh, takes advantage of um, of uh, interaction between um, a co-stimulatory domain and the T-cell receptor itself, so it actually needs three different interactions to turn the T-cell on, and then the signaling uh, would end up being more closely regulated, more closely aligned with what the normal signaling is through the T-cell receptor. So all of these constructs really um, require multiple cell-cell interactions to strengthen the immunologic synapse and improve the specificity and decrease tonic signaling, and the hope is, is that this may lead to safer CAR T-cell but these are in preclinical development um, and uh, should enter clinical trials in the coming months. So what about uh, mechanisms of resistance? So I showed you the response curves before where, you know, 50% of patients will have a CR and 40% of patients will have durable remissions, but what about the other, you know, the other 60% of patients who either don't respond or who relapse? So what do we know about why those patients don't respond? So in terms of uh, just exhaustion of the T cell, we know that CAR T cells upregulate PD-1 and other immunomodulatory molecules upon activation. And in animal models, we know that PDL1 upregulation within the tumor microenvironment can inhibit CAR T cell function and that this can be abrogated um, with PD-1 blockade. Um, there is this, uh, Steve Schuster's group at Penn published this case study of a patient with primary mediastinal large B cell lymphoma who uh, relapsed after uh, CD19 CAR T cell therapy and then was treated in relapse with pembrolizumab, the PD-1 inhibitor, um, and although we don't, <coughs> and had a, had a wonderful response, um, and although we don't, and the response is depicted here, and although we don't know, um, you know, what the CAR T cell levels were doing between around day 15 and 30 when the patient was treated, um, we do know classically the, the numbers would tail off at this point, and you can see that they're much higher after the dose of pembrolizumab. So, you know, you could argue that pembrolizumab has activity in primary mediastinal by itself, but there was definitely um, another signal uh, going through the, the remaining CAR T cells that were in this patient, circulating in this patient's body that may have contributed to a response. So there are two ongoing trials combining PD-1 blockade with CAR T cells uh, currently. One is following relapse, um, and then one is upfront in conjunction with CAR T cells, um, and that's this study here. It's a, uh, it's a study of axicaptogene cellulosal, or the, the kite construct with the tezolizumab, which is a PD-L1 antibody. It's called Zuma-6. Um, this data was presented at ASH last year and will up be updated this year. Um, but and they, they presented the first nine patients 
that were treated on the study, and actually nearly all patients had PDL1 expression either on their tumor or in the microenvironment. Um, and they saw similar efficacy and, and responses to what they saw on Zuma 1 without the PD1 um, antibody. Um, but they, they actually did see several late converters from partial responses to complete responses. So two patients converted from a PR to a CR at six to nine months, which was provocative. Um, and one of the reasons it's provocative is these are actually the CAR T-cell levels over time, so going out to 270 days. And in uh, red are the, uh, the, what happened to the CAR T-cells on patients on the Zuma one trial where they didn't get the PD-1 antibody, um, and in blue are the patients who are on the Zuma 6 study who got the PD-1 antibody. And the, you know, this is not this is not a um, these patients were treated differently, but there is a there does look like there's a difference in the median um, persistence of uh, CAR T cells with in the in conjunction with the PD-1 antibody. Um, the the combination does look safe, um, and they saw similar levels of inflammatory cytokines, similar levels of CRS, and similar levels of neurotoxicity. Another me mechanism of resistance is ant antigen loss. Um, so we know that um, alternative CD19 splicing leads to sort of effective loss of CD19. So it's not that the, the cell loses CD19 because that would cause it to die. Uh, they do lose one copy of CD19, but they have alternative splicing of the other copy so that they lose um, exon 2, which is the domain that the CAR binds to, as well as uh, many of the uh, immunostains binds to. So it looks like the cell is CD19 naked, um, but it's, there is actually enough CD19 on the surface to keep the cell alive, but it no longer is recognized by the CAR T cell. So to combat this, uh, dual antigen CAR T cells are in development. These are CAR T cells that target more than one tumor antigen. So this is just a snapshot from clinicaltrials.gov looking at some of the CD19, CD22 dual antigen CARs and CD19, CD20. So the idea here is not dissimilar from what we do with HIV, which is that if you uh, can treat with targeting multiple antigens, you can decrease the selective pressure for antigen loss. Um, and then just taking a quick look at the T-cell product, because we've only started to get a glimpse into this, but it does look like the health of the T-cell product, the cells that you collect from the patient, do matter. Um, so uh, the group at Penn looked at responses uh, um, to patients who responded to their CAR T-cells, treated mice with those T-cells, and they saw the same uh, correlation with response. So, um, CAR T-cells that were ineffective in humans were ineffective in mice, mouse models and vice versa. Um, so it suggested that intrinsic T-cell factors are important in response. They did the gene expression profiling that showed that there was a different gene expression profile between responders and non-responders. Um, the T-cells were enriched for early memory differ differentiation in responders. Um, upon ex vivo stimulation, uh, CAR T-cells from responders had higher levels of STAT3 signaling, um, and they also had higher levels of memory-like T-cells that correlated with response. And T-cells that expressed PD-1, LAG3, and TIM3 led to uh, lack of response. So this led to, um, uh, and then there was a clinical observation that CLL patients treated with CAR T-cells for more than six months prior, with, treated with abrutinib for more than six months prior to CAR T-cells um, had improved T-cell expansion, decreased expression of PD-1 on their T-cells, and improved anti-tumor activity in mice. And this has led to a pilot trial of um, 
T-cell or tisogen occlusal and CLL um, treated with, um, in patients that had been treated for at least six months with the brutinib with less than a CR. And impressively, they saw an MRD negative rate of 89%, which is higher than what we see in the general uh, CLL population. So it's suggesting that pretreatment characteristics and the T-cell health are, are important factors um, in, in outcome. Um, and I'll tell you a word about cost. We know that this is a really expensive therapy. Uh, it's also cumbersome. You know, patients have to wait quite a while for manufacturing. There are some cost-effectiveness studies that, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but that I'm told uh, suggest that these are potentially cost-effective strategies um, given sort of an expected level of efficacy. Um, but ways that we can combat maybe cost as well as uh, manufacturing inefficiencies is moving towards allogeneic off-the-shelf CAR T-cells where we use donor CAR T-cells we edit them so that we edit out the TCR locus to eliminate um, uh, the risk of GBHD and edit in the CAR T-cell. And this way you can make large quantities of CAR T-cells from a single donor product, and then you can have the CAR T-cells on demand uh, for patients who need them. And one of the other, I'm running out of time, but one of the other things that I think is really intriguing is um, a paper that came out in not that I read this all that often, but Nature Nanotechnology in 2017 um, that looked at using actually nanoparticles to carry the, car con the actual CAR DNA into the, and you inject the nanoparticles with the CAR DNA into the patient. The nanoparticles have a CD3 antibody um, bound to its surface, so you actually are targeting CD3 T cells. So you're actually making in vivo CAR T cells, um, which is really fascinating to me and you know, would be, you know, it would be an infusion um, like a drug which is amazing. Um, so just in summary, the, in terms of the future of CAR T-cells and lymphoma, um, you know, a lot to learn about toxicity management, making safer CARs, using prophylactic strategies um, to manage patients uh, uh, for, at risk for CRS and for neurologic toxicity, um, and trying to better understand what are the key cytokines that we may be able to inhibit. Um, in these, in these uh, toxicities. In terms of overcoming resistance, we talked about antigen loss and the role that bivalent or dual antigen CAR T cells may have to overcome that. Uh, we talked about the role of T cell exhaustion and we talked about the combination trials of CAR T cells plus immune checkpoint blockade inhibitors um, and other immunomodulatory agents. Um, there are also people are looking into further editing uh, CAR T cells to you know, edit out the PD-1 locus so that um, they may uh, decrease their level of uh, exhaustion and then uh, we talked about some of the uniquely engineered CAR T cells that avoid tonic signaling like the TAC T cells. We talked a little bit about the T cell product and how we can start thinking about how to um, improve T cell health in our patients. Um, and we talked about uh, ways that we can overcome issues of cost and manufacturing inefficiencies. And then the last thing I'll just say is expanding indications. So we're looking at CD19 CAR T cells and other types of lymphomas. So there are trials in mantle cell lymphoma, in follicular lymphoma, and other indolent lymphomas, as well as in CLL. Um, there are CD30 CAR T cells in development for Hodgkin lymphoma and T cell lymphomas. And then CD37 CAR, um, CAR T cells are entering clinical trials for BNT cell lymphomas. With that, I went over a little bit, but that's it. <laughs>